The story of the man born blind, as with most stories in John's Gospel, operates on many different levels at once. Because we heard the whole story just now, we got to hear some of this narrative complexity. There's so much richness to the passage, but I'd like to focus on Jesus as the light of the world, Jesus as the judge of the world, and the world's response to Jesus, the light. On the surface, it's a story of the miraculous healing of a man born blind. And though remarkable in itself, it's described in simple, straightforward terms. Jesus put mud on his eyes, sent him to the pool of Siloam, and he washed and received his sight. This creates quite a scene in the neighborhood. People are shocked, surprised, skeptical, and the scene turns comic. People start arguing whether he is or is not the blind man in front of the blind man himself. All the while he's saying, I am the man. You can almost, it's like a musical comedy. You can see the people singing back and forth. On a more serious level, the event is packed with revelatory significance. The Old Testament says in many places that when the Messiah comes, he will give sight to the blind. In Isaiah, for instance, God says of the Messiah, I have given you as a light to the nations to open the eyes that are blind. And then Jesus comes and opens the eyes of the blind. So on the surface level, we have the remarkable account of a man blind from birth whose eyes are opened revealing Jesus to be the long-awaited Messiah and the light of the world. But that's just the surface level. On another level, there's a trial scene going on. The formerly blind man is brought to the Pharisees who begin a formal interrogation. And they have three basic questions. Was the blind man actually blind? Did Jesus actually violate the Sabbath? And Finally, and most importantly, who is Jesus? Who do, they, what, who do they make, what do they make of this man? So first, was the blind man really blind? This might seem strange at first, but they're, they're biased against Jesus from the start because this took place on a Sabbath. So they don't believe the blind man's own testimony that he was born blind. They call his parents in, who confirm that he was indeed born blind, but they would not answer how he, he now sees. So they question the son again. And what's going on here is that, on the one hand, they don't want to credit his story because that would mean a genuine healing took place on the Sabbath. But they end up confirming it when they give their reason for not listening to his quite reasonable defense of Jesus. They say, you were born entirely in sins. In other words, they accept that he was blind from birth and attribute that to his own sins or the sins of his parents, which we know from the beginning of the passage from Jesus' own testimony is not true. So next they want to know if Jesus violated the Sabbath laws. So they ask how Jesus healed him. What was the process? Um, Healing itself, if it was not a life-threatening disease, was considered a violation of the Sabbath. But according to oral tradition, there were actually 39 classes of works that were forbidden on the Sabbath. One of those was kneading dough, and clay, by analogy, was one of those. So Jesus' act of making a little 
clay with his fingers, that's the question. What did that, con- did that constitute work on the Sabbath? What's remarkable about that is that the first response to this dramatic healing is not joy or celebration or gratitude, amazement, but condemnation for the violation of an oral tradition. A little small irony there, if you follow the story throughout, is that according to the same oral law, witnesses must be examined fairly and without prejudice. So the Pharisees are upset with Jesus for violating the oral law, but in the course of this trial, they violate the same oral law. And this is just one of the many ironies that John is weaving into this narrative. Finally, they have to ask, well, who is this person? He's, he's claim, he, they're claiming that he's performed a miracle. It was on the Sabbath. What do we make of him? Well, because he broke the Sabbath law, according to this uh, understanding, they say he cannot be from God. So there must be some other explanation for the healing. The man wasn't born blind, or there was some other explanation. The gigantic irony that's hanging over the whole scene is that although they are putting Jesus on trial through the interrogation of the blind man, they are themselves on trial, a trial that's happening simultaneously. And the verdict in their case will depend on how they respond to Jesus, who is the judge of the world. They are judging the judge of the world and their verdict about him will determine the verdict in their case. This passage is so rich. We've already seen how it shows that Jesus restores the blind man's sight and reveals his identity as the Messiah, the light of the world. It also suggests through this trial scene that it is actually not Jesus who is on trial, but the Pharisees and everyone else, you and I included, on the basis of how we respond to Jesus. And finally, it teaches us a lesson about spiritual blindness and sight. Again, on the surface, it's about a blind man who gains his sight, but the main point of the passage has to do not with physical sight, but with spiritual sight. And we know this because Jesus treats this healing as a sort of enacted parable. Many times throughout scripture, God sends a prophet or a teacher to, instead of give a parable, to enact a parable, to act it out, and then to tell people what the meaning is. And that's precisely what happens here. Jesus treats this healing as an acted out parable, and then he ends the passage by telling us what the meaning is. Uh, He says, I came into this world for judgment so that those who do not see may see, and those who do see may become blind. This is precisely what we saw in the passage. The blind man begins the story knowing nothing about Jesus. He's in darkness, spiritually blind. But as he encounters Jesus, the light gradually dawns on him until the end of the story when he expresses a deep faith and trust in Jesus, which he expresses in at least two ways. He says, uh, when Jesus says, do you believe in the Son of Man? He says, tell me, so that I may believe in him. Uh, In other words, tell me who he is. In other words, whatever you say, I believe. I trust you implicitly. And then when Jesus says, well, the one you're speaking to is he, then the blind man says, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. 
In other words, he expresses it in terms of a faith commitment to Jesus himself. So that's the blind man. On the other hand, the Pharisees think that they have all the spiritual insight they need. And as a result, they are blind to the light of the world standing right in front of them. It's not that they're especially blind. We are all spiritually blind unless Jesus opens our eyes. It is spiritual pride that keeps them from realizing that they are blind, that they need the light of Christ. And as the story illustrates, there is no cure for those who reject the only cure there is. The Apostle Paul says to the early Christians, once you were darkness, but now in the Lord you are light. In this season of self-reflection, we would do well to consider the many ways in which we have ourselves been enlightened by the light of the world. Our gospel reading would encourage us to look to Jesus to scatter whatever darkness is clouding our vision and to bear witness in our own unique ways to Jesus, the light. To do so, we don't need all the answers. We just need to know where to look to find them. And the formerly blind man gives us a model. Look to the light, trust the light, follow the light.